there's at least one thing that we all have in common, no matter our background: a need for food. It's a need that's utterly basic, but in some ways so complex that it even gets political. My name is Angela Becerra Vidigar, and you're listening to the Human Angle. I'm a literary and cultural scholar, and on this show, I bring you conversations with the people whose job it is to explore the human experience and our place in the world. We talk about current issues and aspects of contemporary culture that matter deeply in our everyday lives, our relationships to each other, and our histories as a diverse human community. Together with experts in fields like literature, history, music, philosophy, and the arts, we put the human back into the humanities. My guests today are Professor Jennifer Brody and Adrian Johnson. Jennifer Brody is professor and chair of theater and performance studies at Stanford University, as well as director of the Stanford Division of Dance. Her books include *Impossible Purities* and *Punctuation: Art, Politics, and Play*. Jennifer has also recently been teaching a class in *Food Helix*, a special set of courses at Stanford about the food we eat, with perspectives from anthropology and biology to theater and agriculture. Her class was called "Food and Performance: Meals, Markets, Maze, and Macaroni." Jennifer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Angela. Adrian Johnson is a PhD candidate in the program in Modern Thought and Literature at Stanford, and she's currently writing a dissertation titled "Diet and the Disease of Civilization, 1977 to 2008." She looks at how instructional texts such as diet books, nutrition policy, and medical research influence our ideas of society and social progress. Adrian recently published an article in the Wall Street Journal called "For the Starving, Eat Local Isn't an Option." Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. So, eating is such an essential aspect of our everyday lives that most of our experience with food is pretty mundane.、Uh, we're not always very thoughtful about it, and you both address the ethics of food in your work and your teaching. But what does that mean for us when we're, say, at the grocery store or at the dinner table? What interests you so much about this part of life that seems so ordinary, Adrian? One of the most extraordinary things that I've discovered about food and eating is its insignificance. It's such an overlooked aspect of everyday life that we often take for granted its symbolic import. There's both the ethical side; we can think about food sourcing, we can think about nutrition policy, but more important to me is what the acts of food and eating tell us about what we think it means to be alive, to have a body, and to feed it. To live and to die—these sort of large questions. I couldn't agree more with that, and I also wanted to bring in the aspect of something you mentioned in your introduction, which is the politics of eating. Although it is true we don't think about the source sometimes of our food, we are all imbricated in a larger system, in which questions of exactly life, death, economics, and aesthetics are always at play. Adrian, a lot of us think about food mainly in relation to diets and body image. You study the rhetoric of wellness. How does the medical community really affect what we eat? There definitely is a two-way street between medical research 
and American concepts of health and wellness today. What's also very interesting to me is looking historically at so-called diseases of diet that we have now demystified. Um, in particular, a disease called auto-intoxication, which perhaps like diseases today um, have been thoroughly debunked by the medical community and greatly influenced American ideas of health in its time. What is auto-intoxication? Auto-intoxication was the theory that upright posture in the evolutionary narrative created a fatal disease in the digestive system, which poisoned the body from within. When was that belief prevalent? It was in the Industrial Revolution from about 18, in the 1880s. That seems like something we can't do much about. <laughs> you are both part of the Clayman Institute for Gender Research here at Stanford. Where does gender come into our relationship to food? Is it more than just about who's buying and preparing the food, or is that central to what you're talking about when you talk about gender? Well, I think since you said so well that we are all bodies in motion who are involved with food and cooking. In fact, race, gender, class, nationality, all of those things are really at work whenever we think about food and who's preparing it. I can't think about the question of gender without also thinking about race. And I think historically and culturally, questions around who gets to be, for example, a master chef has really changed the ways in which food preparation for many years was something that was of a low status. Um, we can look to the fact that there were always black cooks in the White House or during slavery who themselves didn't always have access to the best food except for in preparation for uh, another elite class. And I think we are still working with and through some of those questions about the number of female chefs or even being called that, the difference between a chef and a cook, um, as well as the fact that you can think of the family table as having gender inscribed uh, in its very um, understanding of parents who regulate what children can eat and is the mother at home cooking. All of these questions really are part and parcel of food production and consumption. One of the other ways in which gender is inscribed in food is to think about what kinds of foods are endowed with gendered properties. For example, in the 70s, the idea of real men don't mm -hmm. eat quiche, um, which was both about nationality and the idea that the French were feminine or even something like freedom fries. Mm -hmm. This is, again, some of the ways in which food becomes political, not even at its le metaphoric level, but also in terms of the ways in which we can think about our own relationship to food as a politic. I'd like to add that I couldn't agree more. And one of the, the aspects I've uncovered is the invention of candy as a gendered foodstuff that actually, if you think about it politically, sort of legitimated the poor nutritional value of high sugar foods. So bonbons, trifles, little bits of this and that, they're sort of gendered as feminine. We use metaphors from food to inscribe our very ideas of what we think gender might be. So sugar, especially refined white sugar, which was an invention from the 19th century, and people have talked about the deadly combination between sugar and chocolate, um, deadly in the sense that the very production of the sugar is, in, is infused 
with the idea of blood and the horrible conditions under which such sugar was produced throughout the New World. Um, so those very New World inventions that now have been um, codified in a, in a different way by science as not good for us to have sugary drinks or uh, the fact that, you know, it's been on the um, chopping block from particular government officials about whether we should even ban or regulate sugared drinks as uh, a substance that produces diabetes or that is somehow poisonous, in fact, was always already part of its very idea that you can't think about, again, the life and the death as something separate, that sugar itself is a substance that has always been involved with killing the body. It's so interesting to think of those terms, to think of candy, for example, in those terms uh, of gender and the history of sugar production when thinking about holidays such as Valentine's <laughs> Day or things that are also very associated with femininity. And, you know, that if you receive these sugary products, that that somehow symbolizes <laughs> your worth as a lover or a mother, mm -hmm. or, you know, things like that. But then on the reverse side, that these days, because of the debate over sugar awareness and sodas and things like that, that it also seems to have a lot to do with parenthood. Mm -hmm. Adrian, I understand that you're interested in competitive eating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you tell us more about your interest in competitive eating? I'll start by saying that the summer... I spent traveling around to different eating contests. The United States was probably the best summer of my life. <laughs> it's very tempting to dismiss this as sort of trashy or not worthy of analysis, as the people, um, as gurgitators, as they like to be called, as money-hungry or ignorant. But upon close analysis, you'll see that it's a performance of great meaning that articulates in, in world wordlessness such profound ideas about what it means to have a body, what it means to be an American, what it means to eat, what it means to transcend the barrier of language with this common vocabulary of eating and digestion, of the grotesque, of the, these visceral feelings that we all can comprehend in a bodily sense. The World Cup of competitive eating is, of course, Nathan's Famous high stakes, big money, covered on ESPN. Another one is the glutton bowl. But what I found more appealing are the sort of this, although they're still regulated by the IFOCE, the International Federation of Competitive Eating, that it's a, it's a self-standing bureaucracy, the smaller ones are more fascinating. So there was a deep fried asparagus contest that the audience was 10 feet away from the gurgitators. The, uh, the excitement was electric. It was a celebration of local produce, and it was almost a sacrifice to the larger competition. Jennifer, you taught a course at Stanford about the performance of food. What is that relationship between performance and food? Are we performing when we eat? Absolutely, and I think Adrian's example is just perfect for thinking about the ways in which we cannot help but be engaged in rituals of eating. You know, Briay Savarine talks about cooking as the oldest of the arts, and the consumption of food is also controlled by 
uh, rituals of eating and dining, and competitive food eating is just a more extreme example of the ways in which we perform our bodies and ourselves through the material and symbolic medium that is food, which is to say that you can't begin to eat without having a very idea of where, when, how, and under what circumstance, with what utensils. So much of food is about ritualized performance. I feel like we have moved beyond the time of schools of manners, (laughs) for the most part, which is part of what I think of when I think about uh, what you were saying, Jennifer, about rituals of food, you know, which uh, utensils need to be on the table and where uh, and what fork you use for what. And that's certainly still in practice. But do we still, what are some of the rituals that we still have today that, that we use? Well, I think even something like fast food, where your hand is the utensil, the question of unwrapping the wrapper, or do you eat your Oreo cookie by taking off the crust or dunking it or starting with it? So it's still an understanding of how one should proceed with getting food into one's mouth. Mm-hmm. Some people eat French fries with forks. Mm-hmm. And yes. I find that disconcerting. <laughs> or in Pittsburgh, actually on sandwiches. Oh, that's true. In I've, the I've seen that myself. <laughs> <laughs> what about when we cook? Uh, is, is there also a performance aspect to that? And I know you talked about futuristic cooking with your students. And one thing that's hard for me to wrap my head around is something like molecular gastronomy. (laughs) Ah, Can you talk about futuristic cooking? Absolutely. So molecular gastronomy is a term that was coined by a writer named Hervé Thys, who was also a chef. And it's also a wonderful example of the ways in which food has become and is an art. For example, trying to transform ingredients to make them also look beautiful on the plate melds art and science. And I think it's fascinating, the movement we've seen even more recently to have chefs' kitchens. Alinea in Chicago, I took a tour of the kitchens there, and it looks like a lab. People actually have on white coats. There's no yelling. Um, They use beakers. So when we think about transforming so much of everything we're interested in now is about the molecular structure, Um, Even new materialists in both philosophy and in science are concerned with taking things down to the molecular level. And food is also taking part in that as a kind of cultural exchange. Um, But to think about it as melding science and art and the ways in which can you make something look like a yolk when it's really ice cream. So speaking of performance again, uh, this time not in the sense of how you present food, such as uh, with this futuristic cooking, but something more every day. It seems many of us get really caught up in showing how conscientious we are in sustainable eating, and that becomes kind of a, a performance in itself. And I mean, like shopping organic, buying local, uh, making gardens and homesteading. What is sustainable eating, Adrian? I've approached the idea of the uh, the alternative food movement today as thinking of it as embedded in longer and larger myths of American history. So sustainable eating today 
might speak to ideas of gentle agrarianism, to the idea of the happy farmer, to this bucolic understanding of, you know, amber waves of grain, of uh, conscientious tilling of a pure land. So those myths are alive and well in the alternative movement, food movement today. And if we think about sustainability, we have to think about the myths that animate ideas of sustainability today. So you are referring to it as a set of myth. Is there something to that picture of going back to a forgotten or previous ideal time when we were more connected to our food? Or is it mostly a myth? Is there something to it? When I say it's a myth, I I don't mean to say it's hypocritical, and I don't mean to say that it's untrue. I th- I think these myths of American history, we have to be sympathetic towards them. They animate our everyday life. They guide what we think is right and wrong. And if you think clearly about the myth of, like, for example, locavorism, of course it's not true. American economy from the very beginning was based on exports and imports. Today, even an, over a quarter of American agriculture is exported overseas. This is the prep, This is the fabric of the American economy. And by saying let's eat local, let's constrain ourselves, it's it's more of a dream. It's more of the moral halo of the American farmer than it is a practical economic decision that benefits the earth or the poor. Definitely not everyone cares equally about or even has access to fresh, local, let alone organic foods. I'm thinking of food deserts, for example, which are areas that have very limited access to such uh, fresh produce. Can you talk about, Jennifer, what some of these social and class issues are when we talk about fresh, local, organic foods? and different types of grocery stores. Yes, well, there certainly are way too many food deserts, and it's a great irony that many of the people who produce our foods right here in the Central Valley don't have access or funding to eat the foods they produce. And that, again, goes all the way back to slavery. It's been a long history that um, the market determines how people eat and what we're, what and where, again, we can consume and who can consume for what reasons. So this is still a huge problem with too many people going hungry or not getting nutritious food. I lived in Philadelphia, and most mornings I saw a lot of kids in my neighborhood, which unlike stores in California, which were required to have at least some fresh fruits, um, would be eating chips for breakfast because that's what you could get for a quarter. And the production of low-cost foods that are not nutritious is something I think we should try to legislate. That's something slightly different than what Adrian was talking about, with which I absolutely agree, that we can feel as if we are ethical by shopping at farmer's markets, which I think are also replacing a certain kind of social aspect of the market that we're missing with our being tied to screens and the ways in which our life is um, somewhat disembodied in a certain sense. But I would love to see more legislation that would increase people's access to uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. 
And also I'd like to point our attention to the sort of enormous victory of food preservation in the 20th century, the 19th century. Flash frozen produce has pretty much revolutionized how we can transport and eat fruits and vegetables, even if we think about technologies as old as canning. How else could we, could we have gotten through a winter? And I look forward to the moment in which we can um, preserve food without losing any taste or texture. And I hope that moment is soon. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that, and especially in glowing terms, because so much of the discourse, I guess, today, the things that people uh, talk about or see as being superior are very fresh foods. You know, I've seen labels at the grocery store or at a restaurant <laughs> that says never frozen. <laughs> but as you say, actually, these technologies of food preservation, while some do seem to be harmful in some cases, they have revolutionized the access that we can get to food. Why is there that disparity, you know, between the benefits of something like food preservation that people would have loved to have <laughs> in the 18th century, for example, and the way that they're negatively viewed in some cases today? I would say it's a matter of taste. If I were to bring a can of peaches and some jello to Stanford campus, it's it, it has a lower class connotation, and our palates may have been trained to believe that a fresh peach is always better than canned peaches. It's how we grow up. It's the class we think we belong to. It's the cost of the food itself. A can of peaches will always be, it depends on the, usually it'll be cheaper than the peach. Um, I think it's really the cultural construct surrounding the difference between a bag of frozen peas and fresh peas and a can of peaches and that sort of uh, luscious peach that we grow outside in our um, bucolic landscape. So much of that dialogue about getting access to food and having that more direct connection to it has to do with what I think, Adrian, uh, you've looked at, which is self-sufficiency, you know, being able to take care of yourself. And I've looked at this myself in my research about survivalist movements and also do-it-yourself movements and maker communities and things like that, that have that focus on fending for yourself and being ready for anything. What has been your interest in and experience with that aspect of self-sufficiency in our food? It's a marker of independence, especially for the off-the-grid folks. They argue that they don't need the government to intrude upon their lives. Look, we can grow our own corn, we can harvest our own vegetables, we can survive without these sort of larger structures of economy and politics and society. And in a way, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We all can live however we like. Um, when that rhetoric comes over to more mainstream politics, I think it becomes more troublesome. Well, I, I think that actually the land was never ours to begin with, um, and that there's always been a struggle over who has access to that. So you know, Native American communities still extant don't always have control over, again, the food that they can consume or produce. Similarly, I think that 
the idea that somehow you can be outside of politics or off the grid entirely. Um, and I say this from having lived in a semi-communist community in Durham, North Carolina, where we had a, our own organic garden that we shared among several houses. It still is never truly outside. And even the question of, you know, the seeds and how you're harvesting things. I think it's very difficult to be totally um, separate. So I started by talking about how um, that food is something that we all have in common. And that's the case, you know, around the world, but also historically. But really, how unique is our relationship to food to our context? Is it really that much different than how people related to food in the past? Well, I think it is. And I think that's one of the things that Adrian was talking about with the integration or invention of technologies of food preservation, even though there always was a way to do that. The other thing I think that's really changed is capitalism. And that was not always a system in place. So the ways in which, again, we were talking about the packaging of food or the fact that fresh, for example, is an advertising slogan in many cases. The very idea that we're so alienated from our food and or often from the way in which it was made, that it comes to us truly packaged and prepared, has really changed perhaps the way, and I'm not romanticizing by any means, but one's literal closeness to Food. And again, that depends on who and where you are in the world, because it, it really depends. We also have an abundance of choices today, um, something like 10,000 products in a mid-sized grocery store. And with that abundance comes the pressure to choose right, to choose well, especially when others are depending on you, to choose well for your children. And that is, that's, at, at the same time, it's a joy and an expression of self. Um, to choose between the 15 kinds of ketchup. But it's also, we have to choose between 15 kinds of ketchup. So I can understand why ethics is more important today, because there are more choices to be made. Professor Jennifer Brody and Adrian Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Angela Becerra-Vidigar, and this has been The Human Angle. The show is recorded in the studios of KZSU Stanford and is made possible by the generous support of the Stanford Humanities Center and the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages at Stanford University. The music is Look Up Often by Inquisitor. I'm the executive producer. Tom Winterbottom is the producer and co-writer and Corey Goldman is the consulting producer. Find us at humanangle.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to tune in again for the next episode of The Human Angle.